Go ahead and uh, open up to Mark chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. I believe that's still page 28 in your scripture journals. Uh, I'm grateful to once again be under the authority of Mark's gospel this morning. We began this series on the road with Jesus uh, back in February and and took a a short break during the summer and had a couple of one-offs in between. But uh, together we, we, we pick it back up. And then the whole premise is that we are doing this together. We are on the road with Jesus. That's the point. Together with Jesus. We're meeting here on Sundays. We're meeting here on Thursdays. Uh, throughout our weeks over phone conversations, coffees, lunches, dinners. And that's the aim. To bring each other into our lives. Into each other's spaces so that we grow in our faith together. Mark's gospel is an interesting gospel. As we've said before, it was written, first written. Uh, uh, therefore, it serves as a kind of base for Matthew and Mark's respective gospels. Mark wrote this letter of love and encouragement to the persecuted church in Rome, suffering uh, under the torment of the, the ruler Nero who was hunting them and, and killing them and, and, and capturing them and putting them in uh, 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 the arenas to serve as these gladiators to fight other soldiers and animals and beasts. And so uh, they, were, they were there, really, Christians in the city were there to provide the city with entertainment. Uh, Mark writes to this church who was hiding in the catacombs, the crypts underneath the city to worship God in secret. The main theme of this letter, what Mark wants to communicate to them, and by extension us this morning, is that Jesus is king. Jesus is the kind of king that, that didn't come to be served, but to serve. And, and in his humility and in his grace continually shows us that though he is God, while he was here on earth, he was also man. Relevant to us, relatable to us, able to sympathize with our every need. And our last few times in this text have have shown us just that. We find ourselves this morning covering the end of a bit of rare writing for Mark. He doesn't normally write in chronological order, but we have sort of the end of a few days and Jesus' ministry or ministry work for these days. As we've just been seeing, well, from all the way back in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus sort of just grinding out ministry work. Right? We've seen him teaching from a boat because the crowds were so massive. He had to sort of pull away so that he can see everyone and speak to everyone. Then he hikes up the mountains to spend time with just his disciples. And there he commissions the 12 apostles. Then going home, he wakes up to the scribes calling him demon possessed and an instrument of Satan. He hasn't even left Peter's home yet. He just woke up. This is what's happening. And a crowd starts forming. And so he's like, well, 
if you're here, I'm going to teach and begins to teach the crowd. And then his mother and his brothers show up and they want to arrest him. Remember, they, they physically want to kidnap him because they think he's lost his mind. And Jesus deals with that, but the crowds are still there. More and more are gathering. So he goes back to the beach, gets back in the boat because there's more people than ever before. And he sort of preaches from the water. And then what we see after that, he does the parables, right? And then what we see after that is sort of beautiful. He's exhausted. He's exhausted. The truth in that, that our Lord in his humanity can understand the weariness of work because he's felt it himself. The needing of rest. And so evening comes and he takes a nap. He says, let's go to the other side. And he takes a nap. Well, they travel by sea to the other side. And it's there that if you missed last week, I encourage you to go watch the video. But it's there that that Mark begins to string these sort of ideas together, three separate occasions. And it first starts with this this, this storm, this incredible storm. Uh, Matthew calls it an earthquake-feeling storm that happens in the sea. And then what happens is, is Jesus proves he's Lord over everything and he shows his power and his authority over the forces of nature. But this morning we see his power and authority over another realm. Each of these moments that Mark strings together, we see three things, a great tragedy, Jesus's response to that tragedy, and then people's response to Jesus. And so I want to title our time together this morning, Jesus, Lord of all, as we examine another tragedy Examine Jesus's response to it and examine the people's response to Jesus. So would you stand for the reading of God's word? And then would you join me in a moment of prayer as I pray for you and you pray for me as together we hear from God this morning. Mark chapter five, verses one through 20. And it reads like this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chained, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran. And he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to them, or to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea 
and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, <coughs> excuse me, and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Would you pray with me? Father, you have orchestrated this time for us this morning. You have designated this text on this morning with these people present and these viewers watching afterwards online. You have a word for us this morning. And so we ask you once again to supply us with what we need that only you can give. Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear this message? Would you soften our hearts to not only receive it, but be changed by it for your glory and our good? Would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought as the preacher and gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ's beautiful name? Amen. You may be seated. I love stories. I do. I love if you spent any time with me at all. You know, I, I love a good story in all mediums. I don't discriminate TV, movies, books, podcasts, video games. I, it doesn't matter. I love a good story. And I don't think that's unique to me. I, I, I think we all love a good story. All, all the stories, though, if we were to sort of boil them down, all the stories that you and I interact with uh, are essentially a good versus evil kind of story, right? You look at Star Wars, Jedi and the Sith, Harry Potter, the Order versus the Death Eater, Narnia is Aslan and the Witch Queen Jadis. There's all these stories we consume have a, a form, a sense, a, a sort of, of underlying theme of, 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 bad, of good guys win, bad guys lose at the foundational level. The danger here is that we can apply that same way of thinking to the gospel. We can say that in this life, there is Jesus versus Satan. We can say that there is Jesus versus demons. But we see in every story we mentioned before, right? And in every story that exists, there's this play, this, this tug of war that happens. It's sort of what makes a story good, right? The bad guys sort of, maybe, the good guys maybe lost the battle, but in order for them to win the war, they have to sort of overcome such great adversity, uh, adversity and, and tragedy. We pacify. We, we could do this with the gospel. We could do the same thing with the gospel. We can see tragedy here on this earth, tragedy in our lives, tragedy in the Bible. And we could say maybe the enemy has won this battle and we'll pacify ourselves with hoping that Jesus wins the war. 
this isn't true, family. This isn't true. There is no battle on earth that has ever existed in which good loses in any way, shape, or form. There is no tug of war at play where the forces of evil at all even line up against God. They don't even get to touch the rope. Jesus always wins. Always. Our text this morning picks up right after the events of the storm in in last week's text. Verses 1 and 2 give us the details. They came to the other side of the sea. If you remember last week, Jesus says, let's go to the other side. They encountered a storm in between there, but guess what? They got to the other side of the sea. Jesus, Jesus keeps his word. That's crazy. Would you look at that? But they get to the other side. And they get to this town of Gera, and as soon as Jesus steps off the boat, what does the scripture say? He encounters immediately, immediately encounters a tormented man, a possessed man, a man living with a great uncleanliness about him. And he's, he's dwelling, living in the tombs. Back then, there would be these, these sort of natural caves where uh, cities and towns would go and use those caves to bury their dead, or to not really bury, but store their dead. I, it's weird to imagine that in Florida, right? <laughs> like, our beaches are mostly nice and beautiful and got good water, and I mean, they're just nice to be at. Nobody goes to the beach for the cemetery here, Right? Nobody goes to the beach and is like, don't go in there. There's dead bodies in there, right? Like, it just, it doesn't happen here. It's weird. But it's here we interact with our first point, a tragedy. Jesus gets off the boat and is immediately encountered by this man. Family, this is a tragedy, what's going on here. The man is not. Well, it says in verse 2, it was an unclean spirit. Some translations have it as an evil spirit. Here's here's what I want to caution you away from. I've seen sermons and teachings, even commentaries, written that that sort of give the framework that that this this scene and, and moments like this are... Mental disabilities and not demonic possessions. They're disabilities of the mind that we see in our world today. Those are demonic expressions. You see, they're interchangeable. That's what they would say. I want to caution you away from that. That's not the case. This man was unwell, not because he possessed any disability or great need mentally or emotionally that he was born without. No, this is real Demonic activity. And Mark is giving us a very real framework to see this through. Let me just say, I understand the discomfort and the weariness like a a text like this may cause. I know it very well. I won't go into too much detail, but for most of my marriage, uh, Nani and I were sort of on opposite ends of, of, of this theological category. My wife would say that these activities are real, that she saw them. She knows what they look like. She's had experiences with them. 
I had a much more conservative approach. I believed that it didn't all exist. It was all hysteria and the charismatic culture. I believed that people were sort of ingrained to think this way and therefore would behave that way. And then worse, I would chalk it up to mental illness. That's sort of how I dealt with these things until 2018. In 2018, we had an ongoing experience in the home, uh, something that lasted days and weeks. And what I was watching with my eyes, what I was hearing with my ears could not be made up. The person who this was happening to, I know well, I have witnessed their every minute alive. I know this is not taught. This is not being emulated. I know everything this person watches. I know everything this person hears. I, I know this was not something they were mimicking, replicating, making up. And the problem was I did not have the framework, the theological ground, the scriptures clearly give us in passages like this prior to this experience. I had refused to believe this was a real thing. Jamie, what we're about to read is not isolated to this day and time. What we're reading right now is not isolated to this generation or region of this world. These things happen globally every day. Verse three. This man, he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and, uh, and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man lived in the tombs. What this tells us is that he's a social outcast. The town had all but got rid of him as best as they could. They, you don't come in here. We are going to protect this you go live out there he was uncontrollable to society no one could bind him that's what it says no one could bind him or chain him up he had this weird superhuman strength he broke chains he broke shackles in half that they used to tie him down family i wonder if you saw this today if you drove by a cemetery and saw someone living there, saw someone behaving in this day, what in this way, what would your reaction be? I can, I, I, I our immediate re- reaction is to institutionalize them, right? To institutionalize it, get them in a padded room, get them in a particular hospital. Our first reaction would be to judge, to do exactly as this town did, to outcast them, to to try and get them to forcefully behave. We we would probably chalk it up to mental illness or general unhealth. We would would make the same pronouncements of this, uh, this town did and subject them to the same social norm, the same social standard for people who do not fit in our social categories and boxes you don't have to say amen i know what i'm talking about that's what this man is going through this this possession was not a sickness it was not mental a mental health issue it was not insanity but a desperate satanic attempt to destroy and distort god's image in man 
This man does not like living like this. He is being tormented. He is the victim. He's being tied up, not just literally by the town, but like figuratively kidnapped, abducted. That's a terrifying thing. I don't know if you've experienced that. I've never experienced that. But just the very fear of being kidnapped, abducted, held against your own will. That's crazy. And what's, what's more frightening than that is his captor is not present physically before him. At least then he could maybe struggle or fight back in some way. No, his captor, his antagonizer is inside of him. Can you imagine that? The ones doing this are inside. And nobody has been able to help him at all. No one in the town has been helpful. Have you ever felt that powerless, family? Maybe not in this way, but the feeling of powerlessness. That nobody can provide for me what I need in this moment. Unable to change your circumstance. Unable to rescue yourself from the troubles. Nobody is helping. Can't you understand maybe just a semblance of that? Then comes Jesus. Then comes Jesus. Our second point. This tragedy is before us, and Jesus responds. The confrontation was inevitable. A tired Jesus, a weary Jesus is still concerned for his father's glory. He sees the demons tormenting this man, and Jesus is not just present, but he's active. Family, when the image of God is being desecrated, when the image of God is being attacked, when the image of God is being, is, is, is being attacked, it is an attack on the glory of God. Kent Hughes puts it this way. The slaying of man, the distortion of the divine image of God through sin is an attack on the glory of God. We must do everything we can through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to enhance the image of God in our lives. That's why the diagnostic question was asked before this, family. What would you do if you saw this? Apply this, apply, apply this anywhere, though. Right, let's, let's sort of zoom out. It's hard if you've never had experiences like this to sort of find relation or relatability in these circumstances. But, but, but put it out. When the image of God is slain on TV, when the image of God is attacked, do we casually say, well, evil happens every day? Or do we fight to enhance, like Kent Hughes says, the image of God in our lives? Do we Work by the grace and power of God to see, to, to, to enhance the view of the image of God, to see it restored in our lives. Do we respond like Jesus? Look to verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying, that's Jesus, to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus was off in the distance, right? 
The man ran to Jesus. That's interesting, right? That's really interesting that the man would run to Jesus and fall down before him. Oh, family, don't miss it. This man is possessed by demons and still finds some ability to run against all supernatural power keeping him away. Jesus' presence alone provided for the man something that has never been provided to him before, ability, hope. Hope to be delivered. The demons obviously have some kind of control over this man's body. The demons obviously don't want to be anywhere near Jesus. And yet the man finds this window of opportunity immediately. Immediately. And finds this moment of hope and breaks out running to him and falls down before him, not in worship, but in homage. That's what the Greek tense gives us there. Not in worship, but in homage. This is an important note because this this is what this means. It was the man's will to run to Jesus. It was the demon's will to bow. Even, Even the demons in the presence of Jesus yield to him, showing him a sign of power, submission. The demons also speak through this man. They are not passive. They are bowing in submission, but still sort of bearing fangs almost, right? I think of this, in, this interaction between Jesus and the man in this moment, or sort of, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, uh, when, when I finally lived on my own and I was able to get my own dog, I became obsessed with like dog training videos. And so the first dog I ever got was a, a Pitbull Akita mix, right? So I was very happy because I loved this dog very much. But I was always wondering, man, is she going to be aggressive? How do, I, how do I train through aggression? Things like that. And so I kind of became obsessed with like these videos of like training aggressive dogs and becoming the alpha in the home and things like that, right? But, I, but this image, I, I feel like I just see this thing. It's like aggressive dogs when alphas enter the room, they're still aggressive, but they bow, right? They, 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 they don't attack the alpha, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but they'll bare their fangs, right? Their hair will still sort of stand, but their head is low and they won't make eye contact. There's a power dynamic that's being assured in the moment in just presence alone. That's what we're seeing here. The demons now faced with Jesus bow, not in worship, but in homage. And they, they speak, they tell Jesus, what are you doing here, Jesus. They exercise the same muscle. If you remember back in chapter one, the, the, the demon possessed man in the synagogue exercised. They, they call him not casually by his name, right? They don't, they don't say, hey, what's up, Jesus? What are you doing here? No, no, no. They say, what are you doing here, Jesus, son of the most high God? And then they say, I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. What they're saying here is, Jesus, don't punish us. Swear to God you won't punish us. That's the literal translation. Swear to God you won't punish us. It's fascinating. The demons know who Jesus is. He's not a legend to them. He's not a myth. He's a known power figure. He's a known threat to them. But family, this is terrifying news for us here. 
Not because you and I could be possessed or oppressed or whatever the case may be for our specific circumstance. That's not what's dangerous for us in the moment. What's dangerous for us in this moment is something far worse that we could, like the demons, acknowledge Jesus by title and yet not be masters of him. Not be submissive to his way. You hear me? James 2.19, you believe that God is one. You do well, even though demons believe and shudder. Family, you can know of Jesus. You can know facts. You can have experiences, but that does not translate. It does not form a transformed heart that lives to see Jesus' glory among the earth. You can know all the theology, recite every confession and creed, and still be unchanged, unconvinced that Jesus really is Lord of all. You can say true things about God and yet still live in total rebellion against him. Now, remember, family, my opening illustration, there is no tug of war that happens with Jesus. That is not what is happening right now before us in this text. This is not Jesus and the demons doing battle with one another. There is no that is not what is at play here. These are. These are demons acknowledging power superior to theirs and demanding from a position of weakness that they do not meet their end in this moment. This is true, but what is also true is that there is some back and forth going on, though. There is a dialogue that is happening. These demons were not going out passively like the one did in the synagogue, if you remember. Verse 8. So they said this, what are you doing here, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear you won't destroy us. And they were saying that because Jesus was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. They're trying to negotiate terms of loss. All right, you got us. You got us. Please don't kill us right now. This isn't a power battle. This isn't, I'm going to come out. This, this is, I'm going to come out, but please don't kill me when I do. They're not resisting Jesus at all. They have no power to do that. They're just more aggressive than the one we've seen before in personality. So Jesus asks a question. Verse 9, what is your name? What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion was about five to 6,000 soldiers. That's how many are in this man right now. And he says, there's a lot of us. That's ultimately what's happening there. Jesus says, what's your name? He says, my name is this because there's a lot. There's a lot of evil residing in this man. Subjecting him to oppression, tormenting him as one combined force under one spokesman. This is a, this is a jarring admission. This is a, a chilling reply to Jesus's question because you, you can just imagine the disciples face to a Jewish mind at this time. Legion brought about an image of great military force, organization, strategy and power. However, 5,000 demons called legion are also bowing in submission to the living God. 
They have no power over him. Family, I I want to reiterate, there doesn't exist a thing in this world, natural disaster or spiritual adversary that compares to Jesus in power and authority. And Mark wants us to know that Jesus isn't shocked. He isn't intimidated. He isn't frazzled in any way at all. Instead, what happens next is powerful. Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. The demons beg, beg, not ask, beg. They plead with Jesus after their attempts at intimidation and control by way of compliments fails. Jesus is unwavering in their presence. They beg for their destruction to not be now. They beg to stay in the country they are in and not to be sent away far. Verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. That's an interesting note, right? Israelites don't eat pork. What's 2,000 pigs doing there? Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000. That's a lot of pigs. That is a lot of pigs. Rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The Bible is the only book that I know where pigs fly. The demons are begging. I see some, they see some pigs over the hill. They're like, all right, Jesus, you caught us. You caught us. We'll go. Can we go over there? Can we go over there? They, they can't make a move. You understand that? They cannot do without the consent of Jesus. They knew they were done in this man. They knew the work they did was at an end. And now Jesus is there. They knew he wasn't going to let the glory of God and the Imago Dei be tarnished and disrespected by them any longer. This is a weak and defeated enemy. And they don't tell Jesus what they're going to do. They ask because they recognize that he has authority over them. See, family, you don't ask permission from your equal. You ask permission from your authority figure. That's why your boss is your boss. The word beg or or begged is used just three times in these short verses indicating Jesus' rule over them. They need his permission. And so Jesus allows them to be sent into the pigs. Family, Jesus brings order to the chaos. Jesus brings order to the chaos. And we've seen this all throughout the scripture at at creation. It says there was a great void and chaos was there. And God created order with the making and forming of this world at the fall. Chaos was introduced, but with sin. And God creates orders with decrees and rules and limitations in the the world. when, When evil and wickedness abound, God created order with a flood. At Egypt, chaos ensued over God's people 
and yet create, he created order by bringing them to the promised land. Joseph's brothers created chaos in their sin and God created order with Joseph's life, giving him favor with Pharaoh and led to the reconciliation of his family. There was chaos in the Sea of Galilee and Jesus brought order to the storm by rebuking it and now there is chaos inside this man and Jesus provides order by sending them to the pigs. Family, at the cross, chaos reigned when our Savior was nailed to the tree and the sky grew dark and the thunder roared and the disciples thought our Savior is gone, our Messiah is dead, but three days later Jesus came out that tomb and brought everlasting order to his people with his resurrection. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are going through chaos in your sin. You are dead in your trespass, dead in your afflictions, but Jesus rose from the dead then so that you may rise to life now. Jesus brings order to the chaos. Order to the chaos again and again and again so that when chaos happens in your life, when your marriage is falling apart, when the bills are just adding up, when you get let go from your job, when your children are wayward, you can hold fast to a God who cares and promises that though it may seem dark today, there will be a day when the aches of life have no hold on you, where death loses its sting, where all things are made new and we get to sing holy 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 is the lord almighty holy 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 is the one who is worthy uh church jesus brings order to the chaos of this man's life means that he can bring order to yours the demons can't destroy the man they can't so they ask if they can be sent to the pigs and go with Jesus' permission, and, the, and, and what happens is the pigs go off the cliff one by one into the sea. 2,000 pigs total. That must have been really intense to watch. We have our third exam, or moment of examination, the response of the people to Jesus' work here. We have a great tragedy. The Imago Day is being tormented by a legion of demons possessing this man to hurt himself. The demons acknowledge Jesus, calling him by his title, son of the most high God. And Jesus responds by healing the man, exemplifying to everyone just who he is by bringing order to the chaos and showing off his authority and power, not just over the laws of natures, but now demons in the spiritual realm as well. This brings us to our last point. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled. The people who owned the pigs. They fled. And they told it to the city and in the country. They were pissed. He didn't just stop at the city. They just kept going. They were like, we're not just going to tell, we're not just going to tell uh, uh, Palm Bay. We're going to tell all of the United States. People came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had the, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed. And in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. There's four responses here that I want us to. Yeah, four responses here. That I want us to to examine. First, we see the herdsmen. The people who own the pigs, they fled and they told what happened in the city and the country. These dudes immediately watched their now demon possessed pigs drown themselves and they run and tell everyone they could find. And they did not stop running to tell everyone they could find. The Greek here assumes that they left in fear. Like genuine fear. This didn't convert them. To be followers of Jesus. Watching this thing happen did not convince them that they, that they, want, they, they needed to surrender their life to Jesus. This terrified them and, and they withdrew only telling the story of a spectacle and not a miracle. Which then brings the crowd of people right to the beach to see what happened. Were those herdsmen telling the truth? Family, this morning you will respond. This news, this story, this testimony of a real event that happened in this small town in Israel will create a response in you. Will you respond like the herdsmen? Does it create fear in you? Does a God who saves make you flee and run away in shock and tell of the spectacle and not the miracle? Second is the crowds. Crowd gets there and they they see this man who is infamous to them. They know who this guy is. This problematic man who who doesn't fit in their social expectation standard. They're watching him be embraced, clothed, it says, clothed and healed. He was functioning properly again. And this caused a great fear in them. Notice that word, family, fear. Fear. It is actually different than the fear we saw last week in the disciples. Last week, when Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples, the the scriptures had a great fear among them. but But the Greek there was actually awe. The truth of who Jesus was by what he did caused an awe. And this work here, this truth that is declared in his action caused a troubled fear, a negative, a wrongful, superstitious fear of Jesus in light of his power. They begin to do what the demons did. They begin to beg. Even, 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 even what they witness, what is right before them. Even they're watching something happen right before them. They know that it's beyond them. This man did something nobody in this city could do. And their response is, Get out. Friends, some of you are responding this way right now. Some of you have heard this message and you are at checkout. 
Jesus, be away from me. I want nothing to do with this. Jesus, leave me be. It's too controversial. It's too divisive. It's too this or that. It doesn't fit into your sociological categories. Jesus, how could you love the misfit? How could you love the problematic person? Friend, do not respond to such beauty with skepticism. Instead, see that Jesus came just to this place for you. It says Jesus got back in the boat. When the people said leave, Jesus got back in the boat. He came to this place for this moment and this moment only. Notice that Jesus came to this place for you. Came from where he was to meet you here. See the love in his posture, the power in his presence. Third, we see the man's response. Unlike the demons begging to go off of a mountain, unlike the people of the town begging Jesus to live, to leave, this man begs Jesus to let him come with him. This is, this is, this is the wonder of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus reveals himself to you, you are either going to be attracted or you're going to withdraw. There is no middle ground. There is no way for you to remain neutral. Neutral is withdrawing. That's the guarantee. This man asks to be a disciple, but he's asking for a very specific thing. He's asking to be like the apostles. So I want to be like John. I want to be like Peter. He wants to be with Jesus closely from now on. But Jesus denies him this request. That's beautiful. Jesus denies him. And what he tells him instead is, go back home. Go back home. Go back to the ones you have been separated from. The ones who you've been estranged from. Reconcile that relationship. Tell them what happened here. Tell them who I am and what I did. Tell them of my mercy so that they may believe in the man obeyed. Jesus is Lord of all family. He didn't just restore this man back to proper functioning physically. He healed him, cleansed him spiritually, and reconciled him back to his friends. Oh, man. Jesus provided vertical healing and horizontal healing. He didn't just reconcile this man to God, but also to his people. And then the man becomes the first missionary. It's the first time we see someone intentionally go around and spread the good news. See, he was a Gentile. So he was able to go places where Jesus legally could not. He leaves this town and he travels. The Decapolis is a, a string of 10 Gentile cities in the area. And he goes to each of those cities to proclaim the mercy of Christ. And the Greek here says the people who heard him were amazed. His work did not fall on deaf ears. People converted because of him. Family, you may be here in this place this morning. You could be watching this online. How will you respond to Jesus right now? Well, will it be like the herdsmen who were against him? Will it be like the town people who were fearful of him? Or like the firm, formerly possessed man who cherished him and obeyed him? Whose life was changed from that moment onward? Who was reconciled to God and his relationships here on earth? Because here's the thing, friends. You 
will respond. There is no middle ground. No neutral work. Stand with me in worship.